A reading from Genesis, beginning with the 30th chapter and the 25th verse. As soon as Rachel had borne Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, Send me away, that I may go to my home and country. Give me my wives and my children for whom I have served you, that I may go. For you know the service that I have given you. But Laban said to him, If I have found favor in your sight, I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. Name your wages, and I will give it. Jacob said to him, You yourself know how I have served you, and how your livestock has fared with me. For you had little before I came, and it has increased abundantly, and the Lord has blessed you wherever I turned. But now, when shall I provide for my own household also? Laban said, What shall I give you? And Jacob said, You shall not give me anything if you will do this for me. I will again pasture your flock and keep it. Let me pass through all your flock today, removing from it every speckled and spotted sheep and every black lamb, and the spotted and speckled among the goats, and they shall be my wages. So my honesty will answer for me later when you come to look into my wages with you. Everyone that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and black among the lambs, if found with me, shall be counted stolen. Laban said, Good, let it be as you have said. But that day Laban removed the male goats that were striped and spotted, and all the female goats that were speckled and spotted, every one that had white on it, and every lamb that was black, and put them in charge of his sons. And he set a distance of three days' journey between himself and Jacob, and Jacob pastured the rest of Laban's flock. Then Jacob took fresh sticks of poplar and almond and plane trees and peeled white streaks in them, exposing the white of the sticks. He set the sticks that he had peeled in front of the flocks in the troughs, that is, the watering places, where the flocks came to drink. And since they bred when they came to drink, the flocks bred in front of the sticks, and so the flocks brought forth striped, speckled, and spotted. And Jacob separated the lambs and set the faces of the flocks toward the striped and all the black in the flock of Laban. He put his own droves apart and did not put them with Laban's flock. Whenever the stronger of the flock were breeding, Jacob would lay the sticks in the troughs before the eyes of the flock that they might breed among the sticks. But for the feebler of the flock, he would not lay them there. So the feebler would be Laban's and the stronger Jacob's. Thus the man increased greatly and had large flocks, female servants and male servants and camels and donkeys. Now Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's and from what was our father's he's gained all this wealth. And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah into the field where his flock was and said to them, I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before, but the God of my father has been with me. You know that I have served your father with all my strength, yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times. 
but God did not permit him to harm me. If he said, the spotted shall be your wages, then all the flock bore spotted. And if he said, the striped shall be your wages, then all the flock bore striped. Thus God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. In the breeding season of the flock, I lifted up my eyes and saw in a dream that the goats that mated with the flock were striped and spotted and mottled. Then the angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob, and I said, here I am. And he said, lift up your eyes and see all the goats that mate with the flock are striped, spotted, and mottled, for I have seen all that Laban's doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go out from this land, and return to the land of your kindred. Then Rachel and Leah answered and said to him, Is there any portion or inheritance left to us in our father's house? Are we not regarded by him as foreigners? For he has sold us, and he has indeed devoured our money. All the wealth that God has taken away from our father belongs to us and to our children. Now then, whatever God has said to you, do. So Jacob arose and set his sons and his wives on camels. He drove away all his livestock, all his property that he had gained, the livestock in his possession that he had acquired in Padam Aram, to go to the land of Canaan to his father Isaac. Laban had gone to shear his sheep, and Rachel stole her father's household gods. And Jacob tricked Laban, the Aramean, by not telling him that he intended to flee. He fled with all that he had and arose and crossed the Euphrates and set his face toward the hill country of Gilead. When it was told Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled, he took his kinsmen with him and pursued him for seven days and followed close after him into the hill country of Gilead. But God came to Laban, the Aramean, in a dream by night and said to him, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And Laban overtook Jacob. Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country, and Laban with his kinsmen pitched tents in the hill country of Gilead. And Laban said to Jacob, What have you done that you have tricked me and driven away my daughters like captives of the sword? Why did you flee secretly and trick me and did not tell me so that I might have sent you away with mirth and songs, with tambourine and lyre. And why did you not permit me to kiss my sons and my daughters farewell? Now you have done foolishly. It is in my power to do you harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night, saying, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And now you have gone away because you long greatly for your father's house. But why did you steal my gods? Jacob answered and said to Laban, Because I was afraid, for I thought that you would take your daughters from me by force. Anyone with whom you find your God shall not live. In the presence of our kinsmen, point out what I have done that is yours and take it. Now Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. So Laban went into Jacob's tent and into Leah's tent and into the tent of the two female servants, but he did not find them. And he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's. Now Rachel had taken the household gods and put them in the camel's saddle and sat on them. Laban felt all about the tent, but did not find them. And she said to her father, Let not my lord be angry that I cannot rise before you, for the way of women is upon me. So he searched, but did not find the household gods. 
Then Jacob became angry and berated Laban. Jacob said to Laban, what is my offense? What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? For you have felt through all my goods. What have you found of all your household goods? Set it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen, that they may decide between us two. These 20 years I have been with you. Your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried, and I have not eaten the rams of your flocks. What was torn by wild beasts I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself. From my hand you required it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. There I was by day, the heat consumed me, and the cold by night, and my sleep fled from my eyes. These twenty years I have been in your house. I served you fourteen years for your two daughters, and six years for your flock, and you have changed my wages ten times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. Then Laban answered and said to Jacob, The daughters are my daughters, the children are my children, the flocks are my flocks, and all that you see is mine. But what can I do this day for these my daughters or for their children whom they have borne? Come now, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. And Jacob said to his kinsmen, gather stones. And they took stones and made a heap. And they ate there by the heap. Laban called it Jagar Sahadutha, but Jacob called it Gilead. Laban said, the heap is a, this heap is a witness between you and me today. Therefore, he named it Galid and Mizpah, for he said, the Lord watch between you and me when we are out of one another's sight. If you oppress my daughters or if you take wives besides my daughters, although no one is with us, see God is witness between you and me. Then Laban said to Jacob, see this heap and the pillar which I've set between you and me. This heap is a witness, and the pillar is a witness, that I will not pass over this heap to you, and you will not pass over this heap and this pillar to me to do harm. The God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge between us. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac, and Jacob offered sacrifice in the hill country, and called his kinsmen to eat bread. They ate bread and spent the night in the hill country. Early in the morning, Laban arose and kissed his grandchildren and his daughters and blessed them. Then Laban departed and returned home. The word of the Lord. I speak to you in the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. So this morning we continue with what has turned into a series on the B-sides from the life of Jacob. That is, stories from his life that aren't covered in our three-year lectionary, the cycle of scriptures appointed for Sunday mornings. Now, if you joined us last week, we looked at an extended passage from Genesis 27 to 29, which began with Jacob fleeing from his parents' home in Canaan because his brother Esau wanted to kill him. But the reason Jacob had fled to the north toward his uncle Laban, more than 500 miles away, 
is because his father Isaac sent him there to acquire a wife from their relatives, which was also where Isaac's wife Rebekah had come from. And it took Jacob seven years to accomplish what Isaac had sent him to do. But in that time, he ended up doing it twice over. Eventually, after being on the receiving end of some deception from Laban and responding to it with some questionable decision-making on the part of Jacob, Jacob ended up married to both of Laban's daughters, first Leah and then Rachel. But he also ended up owing his uncle an additional seven years of indentured servitude. And those years that followed, years 8 to 14 working for Laban, saw the birth of Jacob's first 12 children, with the child most recently born, Joseph, being the first child to come from Rachel. That's where our passage left off last week. And it's crucial for understanding the timing of what happens where we pick up today. Because prior to bearing any children, Rachel's place in Jacob's family would have been tenuous. At least it would have been considered that way in that cultural context where barren women were often discarded, ostracized, or given a lower status by their husband, particularly when he was polygamous and had more than one wife. He would favor the one that was giving him children. So now with Rachel having finally given Jacob a son, Laban, her father, had no reasons to be concerned about how she might be treated. So when our passage opens, having fulfilled his 14 years of obligation to his uncle and father-in-law Laban, Jacob turns in his pink slip, or he tries to. He says to Laban, send me away that I may go to my own home and country. Give me my wives and my children for whom I've served you, that I may go, for you know the service I've given you. But what follows in the rest of the paragraph here is that Laban coaxes Jacob into staying. And this portion of our passage, the end of chapter 30, is where we're going to end up today. But before we get into that, I want to establish why Jacob was trying to leave at the first possible opportunity and why it really was time for Jacob to go there in chapter 30. Now, certainly plenty of good had come from Jacob's 14 years at Laban's. As we said, he'd gone there in search of a wife and had accomplished that twice over. And in those intervening years, 12 of his eventual 13 children had been born. But also during these years working for Laban, Jacob had become very proficient at raising livestock. Laban had become, for Jacob, a sort of surrogate father in that time, teaching Jacob a trade where Isaac had failed to teach him a trade. And this had benefited Laban too, though, increasing his wealth. But it gave Jacob the skills that were needed to provide for himself and his family as an adult. Well, also, we also see that Jacob had learned a level of honesty while working under Laban, not thanks to Laban. But he, he learned, learned a level of honesty that he hadn't come there with in his business dealings. But now, after 14 years, it was time to go. Jacob had accomplished what he'd come there for and fulfilled his commitments to work for Laban those 14 years. 
But more importantly, Jacob needed to get away from Laban. And that's the primary reason I included chapter 31, that portion of our extended lesson today. Because it describes how at God's urging, Jacob will eventually manage to leave. But what some may miss, what's easy to miss, is that it takes Jacob another six years. The events of chapter 31 occur six full years after Jacob first tries to leave at the beginning of our passage in chapter 30. But chapter 31 reveals what a toxic person Laban was and therefore why it was so important for Jacob to get away from him. Of course, in many ways, we already knew Laban was toxic. We knew he was a manipulator and deceiver from what we'd read about him last week, right? When Jacob thought he was marrying Rachel, Laban substituted his older daughter Leah in the honeymoon suite. And whether Jacob had that coming to him or not, I think we can agree that's a pretty big big red flag about the kind of person Laban is. Even in chapter 30 today, we had the revelation, verse 28, that Laban practices divination. And later in 31, we learn that he uses household gods, which were typically small figurines of regional deities. All of this, of course, being at odds with biblical faith. But as author Rebecca Reynolds points out, chapter 31 is chock full of even further evidence of Laban's toxicity. In chapter 31, verse 7, we find Jacob lamenting to his wives that just in the past six years, years 15 through 20, Laban had changed his wages and cheated him ten times. So he indicates to them that he's, he's finally serious about leaving. He indicates that to his wives. But Rachel and Leah are right there with Jacob. There is clearly no love lost between them and their father. And we understand what we learn why in verse 14, where they share their own complaint that their fathers cheated them as well. You see, Jacob had been working 14 years for Laban as, as payment for marrying Leah and Rachel. Right? That was a bride price, which was customary practice in that culture. Jacob had paid the bride price in his labor because he'd come there penniless. But in the best case scenarios, when a bride price was paid to a bride's father, the father would accept that from the groom and then in the best case scenario, immediately give it to his daughter upon marriage as sort of a some starter money, but even if not, the father would be expected to hold that money essentially in escrow so that his daughter would eventually inherit it when he, the father, died or have money to support her family if her husband died. But rather than storing up Jacob's 14 years of wages toward the bride prices, apparently Laban had just spent all of it on himself. And so Leah and Rachel lament that that he's not looked out for their interest and has essentially sold them into marriage to profit himself. They say that explicitly. So Leah and Rachel clearly despise what their father's done to the extent that when Jacob's ready to get out of there, they are completely supportive and ready to get out of there too. 
Now, I should say that when Jacob finally does leave in verses 17 to 21, he doesn't do it in the most upstanding way. We're told that he waits until Laban is away getting his sheep sheared, which happened every spring. And Jacob sneaks away with his family across the Euphrates River. And Rachel isn't the most upstanding in it either, as she takes her father's household gods with her. Now, typically, these household gods in that culture would have been passed down to one's children as an inheritance eventually. So perhaps this is Rachel's way of spiting her father for the lack of inheritance he'd withheld for her. But either way, once Laban discovers they've left, he runs them down. And when he confronts Jacob, Laban has the audacity to suggest that if if Jacob had only given him the chance, that he, Laban, would have sent them all away with a generous banquet. In verse 27, Laban, the tightwad, says, Why did you flee secretly and trick me? And did not tell me so that I might have sent you away with mirth and songs, with tambourine and lyre. Jacob must have been thinking, yeah, I bet you would have sent us away that way. Especially because in the very next breath, Laban shifts tactics to try to get Jacob to come back, reminding Jacob that he could hurt him if he wanted to. He says in verse 29, It's in my power to do you harm, but the God of your father spoke to me last night, saying, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, good or bad. Though saying bad things to Jacob is exactly what Laban is in the midst of doing or about to do here. But Jacob comes back at Laban. Verse 38, he highlights how hard he worked for Laban for 20 years, essentially saying, I don't owe you another thing, Laban. So Laban then responds by completely attempting to completely gaslight Jacob. A person gaslights another when they attempt to control that other person by challenging their perceptions of reality. And Laban does this in his last desperate attempt to get Jacob to stay. When he tells Jacob in verse 43, the daughters, these daughters are my daughters. Their children are my children. The flocks are my flocks. All that you see is mine, Laban says. Of course, this isn't true. But Laban is employing shame and deception and gaslighting to try to make Jacob feel like he owes him something that he doesn't. Of course, it isn't true. It's written in Genesis 2, and Jesus will later affirm that a man and woman shall leave their parents and hold fast to one another, which is to say that Laban doesn't actually have any paternal authority over his married daughters as he claims to have. Having now become their own family under God, whether Jacob or Leah or Rachel offer any fealty to Laban is purely their prerogative. They don't owe it. Now, as far as Laban being a toxic person, if if he had behaved in, let's say, one or two of these unacceptable ways and that I've identified and, and repented, That might be one thing, right? We all sin, we all make mistakes. But this cluster of behaviors, combined with Laban's complete cluelessness about, seemingly, about how inappropriate and immoral they are, 
They make him what I would label a toxic person whom Jacob needs to distance himself from. And Jacob finally does, finally manages to, realizing that Jacob has changed and that none of his ploys are working. Laban reluctantly proposes a treaty between them in verse 44. Though don't be fooled into thinking that is an amicable treaty, right? Or that they suddenly trust each other because everything about that treaty says they don't. And the next morning they part ways. So chapter 31 shows us why Jacob needed to get out of there, right? And he needed to for so long. Now, when I say that, I'm not talking about rejecting Laban outright as a person, right? Though Laban surely interpreted what Jacob did in that way, right? But that's not in Jacob's control, how Laban takes it. So I'm not talking about outright rejecting Laban. I'm talking about Jacob not willingly placing himself or continuing under Laban's authority once he actually has a choice about it, right? And I'm talking about Jacob not allowing Laban to continue to exploit and abuse him and his family, right? So in chapter 31, Jacob manages this. But again, he and his family could have left much earlier. Back in chapter 30, at the beginning of our passage, they could have left much earlier and spared themselves of six more years of enduring Laban's toxicity. So with what's left of my time today, I want to turn my attention back there to the end of chapter 30 to consider this question. Why didn't Jacob leave when he first should have six years earlier? Why didn't Jacob leave when he should have. Well, if we look at the first verse that we open with, 3025, Jacob starts out strong, right? Says, as soon as Rachel had born Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, send me away that I might go into my home and country. Give me my wives and my children because I've fulfilled my 14 years. But it doesn't take much for Laban to persuade Jacob to stay, does it? And let's see why. In verse 27, Laban responds, If I've found favor in your sight, I've learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. Name your wages and I will give it, he tells Jacob. So superficially, one might say, first of all, that Laban responds with flattery, which is true, but author Craig Barnes, who I've mentioned the past few weeks, he suggests that more deeply, what Laban's really pulling on here is he's pulling on Jacob's feeling of being indispensable. He's pulling on Jacob's feeling of being indispensable to Laban's operation there. He's saying, Jacob, since you've been working here, things have been going great, and I really can't afford to lose you. And this has an effect on Jacob. Because feeling necessary, and indispensable in his work is clearly a way that Jacob has come to feel some self-worth during his time at Laban's. I wonder if any of us have ever experienced a similar powerful pull, feeling indispensable, feeling necessary, deriving some sense of value from that, from being needed, whether it's in our job or in volunteer work, or in our home life, relationships. 
You know, what can make this especially tricky for us is that in our society today, feeling needed is held up as a virtue, right? Something that you want to kind of manufacture, right? But Barnes insists that feeling needed is not actually a virtue from the Christian perspective. Rather, it is a vice that falls short of the gospel. The reason, you may think, what what are we talking about here? Well, when we make ourselves indispensable to others, when we do that, those people are, or those individuals or people are valuing us for something, for what we give to them. Laban was valuing Jacob for what Jacob gave to him from a business standpoint. And so when our sense of value gets attached to that, what it does is it puts us on a treadmill that never stops because we have to constantly keep making ourselves necessary, right? To feel like we have value and significance. But Barnes writes, and listen to this, Barnes observes that we can't love things that are necessary. You can't love something that is necessary. Laban is not loving Jacob, right? The reason is because love is always a choice. And when someone is necessary to us, we can't make a choice about whether to have them or not. So in contrast then to making ourselves necessary, our alternative is to believe the gospel. To believe that God doesn't value us. God doesn't value us because of what we do. God just values us because of who we are. God went to the, Jesus went to the cross for us because of who we are, because he chooses, chose freely to love us. In fact, Barnes says something else startling. He says that you and I are, are actually unnecessary. Now, I don't mean any offense here. He says we are unnecessary, and it's true. In fact, if you really think about it, the whole world and cosmos is unnecessary, right? God didn't have to create any of this, but he did. Why? Because of love. Because he freely chose to share his love with another, with us. So that's the first reason Jacob has trouble leaving. But a second reason that, that is attached to that, related to that, is because Jacob had been, he'd been successful. Now, granted, perhaps Jacob's angling to attain even more success on his own, probably so. But he probably also thinks, well, a bird in the hand's worth two in the bush. He can't know for sure what's going to happen when he goes out there on his own. Might actually have to trust and rely on the Lord a little bit. Where with Laban, Jacob has a title. He's Laban's right-hand man. And it's a gig that has predictability, security. Which leads, of course, to the third reason Jacob stays when he shouldn't, and that is greed. Greed. Love of money. Because in verse 28, Laban had said, name your wages and I'll give it, right? So Jacob now sees a business opportunity. You'll recall that up until now, he'd had no no wage. He'd been working as an indentured servant, paying off these wives. I kind of say that as a joke. I'm not trying to objectify him. So Jacob begins to hint that, well, maybe he would be open to staying. 
saying to Laban, you yourself know how I've served you. This is verse 29. How your livestock fared with me, for you had little before I came, and it's increased abundantly. The Lord's blessed you wherever I turned. But I need to provide. I need money for my household, right? So Laban says, what will it be then? Jacob says, I don't want money. All I ask is that the sheep from, from, uh, that are spotted black and your goats that are spotted and speckled, I, that's, that's what I want. Now, these piebald animals, as we would call them, would have actually been both the smallest portion of Laban's herd and the least valuable. But what Jacob's doing here is he's betting on himself, Right? He's confident that he can, in his own abilities, multiply his investment. So Laban agrees. But then he tells his sons to go separate the spotted animals out and take them three days away to keep them from mating with the pure ones or benefiting from Jacob's shepherding. Well, not to be outwitted, Jacob's solution is to combine a little bit of folklore tradition with some legitimate breeding science. So it's just a little bit beside the point, but it's a mysterious part of the passage, so I thought I'd explain it for a second. Jacob took fresh sticks of poplar and almond and plane trees, verse 37, and peeled white streaks in them, exposing the white of the sticks. He set the sticks that he'd peeled in front of the flocks in the troughs where they tended to breed. And the flocks bred in front of the sticks, and so the flocks brought forth stripes speckled and spotted. Now, in those days, it was commonly believed that one could breed livestock for certain colors by using visual aids. Of course, we now know this is scientifically nonsense. But that it works for Jacob can only be explained either as a coincidence, or Jacob later explains it in chapter 31 to his his wives as something that God... uh, did through miraculous intervention that God had kind of done it and accommodated him. But there is, of course, science to back up what Jacob did after that, when he keeps the stronger animals around the water troughs where the animals were most prone to, to mate, which results in stronger animals for him, right? Benefits himself. So anyway, the final reason Jacob stuck around was because he saw an opportunity to enrich himself which highlights that third way that we can be tempted to derive our value from the world, which is through possessions and wealth. And Jesus talks about this all the time, right? So what what keeps Jacob around when he should have left is he succumbs to the temptations of deriving his, his value from feeling needed, from being successful, and from having wealth. And these, of course, are false paths, as Jesus teaches. Because the only way any of us can feel truly significant in a way that satisfies us is by not looking at any of that, but by believing we are blessed, by believing we are loved simply by who we are, not through all these conditional things. And this is what the Lord had promised to do and be for Jacob years before in his dream at Bethel. But Jacob hadn't gotten to the place where he could really believe that yet. Jacob knew he needed to leave. But Jacob didn't know how to deal with those other pulls on his heart that we've talked about. And it makes sense, frankly. It makes sense that Jacob would struggle to trust in God, right? 
I mean, think about it. Neither his earthly father, Isaac, nor the, this man who'd become his surrogate father, Laban, neither of them had set him up well to trust a heavenly father, right? The former, Isaac, didn't love him for who he was, favored his brother, right? And the latter, Laban, had shown himself to be untrustworthy time and again. So it's no wonder that Jacob struggles to trust a heavenly father, right? He's never practiced it. Never had it modeled. But what do we do when we find ourselves in a situation like Jacob here in chapter 3? I mean, for us, it could be a work situation. It could be a toxic relationship with a family or family member or a loved one. What do we do when we know the right decision, but everything in our body is pulling us toward old habits and responses? Well, first, we need to seek support. You know, Jacob's first mistake in chapter 30 is he goes to Laban seemingly on his own and just kind of standing in his own, you know, masculinity, I guess. But in contrast, in chapter 31, notice that he, by that time, Jacob gets both of his wives in his corner, backing him up, saying, yes, you are doing the right thing and we are with you. Right? And this is crucial because what we fear so much when we try to put in boundaries in a relationship, what we fear so much is abandonment. And so in chapter 31, Jacob didn't have that pull anymore because he knew he wasn't going to be abandoned. But we also have to do the inner work of self-compassion when we feel these pulls. Don't condemn yourself for it. You probably come by it honestly. Understand that we need to understand that the parts of us that don't want to do the right thing or what we know to be the right decision, we, those parts typically learn to do the wrong thing in much different circumstances than we may be in right now. Perhaps during a time of our life where we didn't even know God, we developed those habits of response. And so self-compassion for feeling those pulls is key, not self-condemnation kind of saying to ourselves, I get it. I get it. And yet the sad reality is that sometimes, as Jacob shows, sometimes we need to experience more pain before we're willing to do that inner work that's necessary to put in a healthy boundary. And that's the case for Jacob. Notice Notice, though, God didn't forsake him. Jacob makes the wrong call into chapter 30. God doesn't forsake him because of that, frankly, lack of faith. But Jacob does incur the consequences, right? As he had to learn the hard way that feeling needed and being successful and having wealth wouldn't actually make him happy, wouldn't actually fill his cup, that it was a lie. And he endured six more years of being subjected to Laban's exploitation and emotional abuse that he didn't have to, but maybe in some sense he did. Until finally God mercifully in 31.3 hits him over the head and says to him, Jacob, what are you doing here? What are you doing sticking around here? Get out of here, man. Let the dead bury the dead. So today we have an opportunity to learn from one of Jacob's mistakes. 
as we see him being confronted with some of the many temptations that confront us to seek our significance and value from the things of the world, to not even be thinking about it, but just to be in those habits. And Jesus invites us, though, when we identify them, to let those things go, to grieve them, to count them as a loss, and instead to seek first him and his kingdom and trust him to provide everything we need. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.